Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. So glad you could join us tonight. Mark's got a great show. We want to thank first um, Ken Quiet-Hawk for his amazing intro. He and his wife, Deb, uh, have, an, a wonder, have a wonderful uh, site out there. They are near Native Storytellers, and their skill and their craft is ancient as time and provides a wonderful way of preserving history. So please check it out. They are quite amazing people. Mark has, as I said before, a really cool guest tonight. You're going to really... Uh, this is one of those shows where I can't wait to hear what comes out of everybody's mouth because it really looks like it's going to be a good one. So roll up your sleeves, you know, settle back, take your shoes off, and enjoy the next two hours because he's got a good one for you tonight. Mark, it's all yours. Okay, how how are, how are you, Barbara? Doing very well, thank you. Yeah, we're down to only two shows this week. It seems <laughs> like uh, you know, yeah, having a little bit of a vacation. I'm I'm greatly relieved. Four was a lot. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> was, but uh, yeah, um, yeah, the, the two shows this week are going to be terrific. Um, you know, we have uh Dave Godsword making his debut with us tonight. Um he's been mentioned a few times uh by previous guests, but this is the first time we've actually had him on the show. Uh he co authored America's Stonehenge with uh Robert Stone and Dave also worked at America's Stonehenge in the 1980s. Uh, many of Dave's writings incorporate science and history. Uh, Dave is also a colleague at Ancient American Magazine. He's He has an article in the current edition, uh, number 125, uh, and we'll be uh, talking about that you know, in just a little bit. Uh, he is just about ready to publish a revised edition of his The Westford Night, 
in the first of his two-part series on sea monsters will be out next month, and he will be doing uh, a little uh, speaking tour of New England to accompany the publication of Sun, Sand, and Sea Monsters. So, hey Dave, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. No no pressure here with that sort of build-up, was there? <laughs> it, uh, it, 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 the, the, this is the way the shows usually start, and who knows where it's going to go for the next two hours. And, you know, uh, you know, with all the sea monsters, your <clears throat> uh, several mermaid uh, stories. Uh, you know, if you're looking for a uh, third book to uh, create a trilogy, uh, you, know, you can do one on the. Pompano Beach Mermaid and her West Coast sister, uh, and how, how they ruin the lives of innocent young men. But yeah, you know, we can save that for another. Well, that's show. almost the definition of a mermaid to start with. Yeah, I, 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 I'm dealing with them on a regular basis. I, I kind of feel like the, the, you know the one, like your Ben Franklin sample where, uh, you know, they're going after this. Uh, like twelve-year-old boy, and uh, you know, he turns out to be you know, like a, a mer- merman. I, that, I'm just, I, I just feel like I'm being chased by a couple of these uh, crazy women in a boat. But uh, uh, we'll get to, to, to that later. That sounds better than my story. <laughs> But, but, you know, part of your uh, guiding principles of writing is to include the context of these anomalies, uh, whether they are uh, America's Stonehenge or sea monsters. One that really left an imprint on me – Aside from the sea cucumbers, which we'll be covering later, is the earthquake lights from your uh, America Stonehenge book. Um, I don't, you know, when Dennis has been a guest, I don't think we've like gone into um, a lot of detail about it. But you know, in in the book, you you, know, you do exp- uh, explain that in. Uh, in depth, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we should. That would be a good place to start, and Jump you, you know, we can, there. yeah, look at how, yeah, you know, your creative process of incorporating all the known facts into understanding a uh, historical place like America Stonehenge. Yes. Uh, and I, 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 I would like to reiterate what you said. I really believe that context is an overlooked aspect of the sort of research we're all doing. Um, 
everything is taken at face value. Nobody's trying to understand why this happened, when it happened, or if there could have been something leading up to it. Now, the theory you're talking about is actually something developed by Michael Persinger, who is a professor at the Behavioral Neuroscience Lab up in Ontario, uh, Laurentian University. And his theory is something he coined as tectonic strain theory. Now, he did not specifically come up with this theory to address archaeology. His theory was that earthquakes were triggering geomagnetic field spikes, and that was affecting people's amygdaloid and hippocampal regions of the brain, and that affects their sense of self in relationship to time and space. So what happens is they are minding their own business. They're out in the woods. There's a earthquake, and it may not even be something that was registered. It was such a small quake, but there was this mm -hmm. electromagnetic field shift, and it basically is randomly firing their brains. And you have a person standing there who does not know what just happened, and they have these loose, random pieces of memories that were created that they are trying to make sense of. His theory was that these earthquakes coincided with spikes in UFO sightings. Now, again, he's not looking at every single UFO sighting out there. I don't think anybody has that type of time or effort. What he's looking specifically at are UFO sightings immediately after an earthquake. And there does seem to be some correlation. Now, moving that into archaeology, these um, transient electrical displays go um, – I'm trying not to techno-babble myself on the first hour here. Um, you end up with a, comp a complex and a vivid experience. And the problem is if you don't know what happened, you need to put this into context – 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, this was a divine revelry. Um, if, you look at ancient, if you look at ancient Greece, most of these temples are built along fault lines because something sacred happened there, and that is a key sense of it. These transient geophysical fields, 2,000 years ago, 100 years ago, you had an experience you could not make heads or tails out of because there is no event. It's your brain playing mind games, if you'll pardon the expression. And as a result, you try to make sense of it by putting it into your frame of reference. In ancient Greece, you were visited by a god. A hundred years ago, you were visited by an angel. Nowadays, and this is where Persinger comes into play, he says, you saw, an, you saw a UFO. You were abducted by a UFO. You have these random memories you can't place. Your brain puts them into context. You know about UFO abductions. You believe in them. Something has happened that you have scattered memories of that your brain is trying to piece together like a patchwork quilt. You believe you were abducted. And... Part of these fields are so 
intense that you come away with an, a, a real deep down faith that whatever happened, happened for a reason. It was a divine presence. It was a superior intelligence. Mystery Hill is a perfect example of when, where this can happen because these tectonic pressure along the fault lines, particularly if it has quartz on it, it uh-huh. compresses and stretches the earth and that's what causes the electromagnetic discharge. Quartz, it releases a piezoelectric discharge, and that's your earthquake light. Now, your brain is being scrambled by an electromagnetic discharge, and your brain is basically an electromagnetic computer, and you've seen bright lights. And when your brain comes to, if you believe in religion or deeply religious person, you saw an angel. God spoke to you. If you believe in UFO abductions, you were abducted. It's all based on your frame of reference. Mystery Hill is a perfect location for this. Um, The bedrock is heavily laced with quartz. Veins are everywhere. In fact, there's one spot if you go up there and take the tour where you can literally see the fault going through the surface of the site, and there's a quartz intrusion, and it has shifted two inches apart on either side of this line. So there's definitely moving. Uh, there's a pluton of newer rock. Uh, pluton is basically, for lack of a better way to put it, a blood blister in geology where newer rock has forced its way to the surface. Newer being more, you know, two or three year, million years later. We're not talking last week. We're talking by millions of years. And this newer rock actually at there has magnetite in it. So you've already got a magnetic field anomaly, which messes up compasses tremendously. Next time Dennis is on, ask him about the adventures of his father and uncle trying to do the survey of the calendar originally when they couldn't get a a decent compass reading half the time. Okay. And I've been up there. I've seen the earthquake lights up there. uh, In worst case scenario, it was actually on Halloween uh, hmm. We used to have, as manager, I used to have to staff up there that night to protect the site from people going up after midnight, quote unquote, to see the witches. Um, insurance is bad enough during business hours. You get people wandering around in the dark on a hill full of rocks and trees. Uh, I don't even want to think about what the insurance would have been. So we would go up and chase people off. So we're going up at midnight and overhead, silently, two big white lights, zoom, zoom. Our first thought was that somebody was up there and had fired flares because it looked like flares flying away. But there wasn't the normal sound you hear. And I still don't know what we saw. I have to assume it was earthquake lights. Um, simply because I have no better explanation for it. But you see these oddball electromagnetic things going on other places. Um, Gunjiwamp down in Connecticut, or I'm in Florida, so it's up in Connecticut. I still think I'm a New Englander, don't mind me. Um, That has got ghosts and will-o'-wisps and all sorts of oddball material. I'm not sure in the middle of the woods 
whether a will-o'-wisp is just swamp gas and a luminous ghost is just electromagnetic discharge, but it's not, you know, it's, it seems to fit in with an awful lot of the phenomena at some of these sites that we just can't explain. With something like that happening, you know, 4,000 years ago, you know, lights rising up from the ground, you know, you could see where, you know, the people didn't have the understanding that we have today and that it's understandable that they could say, like, this is a sacred spot where... Uh, yes. And something like the underworld. You know, we're going to get into you know the sea serpents guarding the underworld later in the show. But it, it, it's almost like the same thing. Uh, uh, gods are coming up out of the ground or something like that. You know, it's I can see yeah. that. Well, my theory is if it happens in one place once, you've had a spiritual <laughs> event. If it continuously happens, that's a sacred place. And that's where you see things like um, the temples in Greece. That's where you see Mystery Hill with the stone structures, uh, Gunjiwak community. There's a, there's a group over – some of these groups are, are gone now. There was one group called Vestigia, and they were exploring ghost lights that seemed to be associated with power lines and railroad tracks. Exact same theory. Um, stress in quartz bearing rock, creating electrostatic discharges. Um, there's another group out in England called the Dragon Project, and I think they, I, they may still be around. I, I haven't paid attention, I must admit. And they are finding that there are stones like the Rollwright stones over mm-hmm. there that seem to sporadically emit signals in the ultrasound range. Some of these stones are, are sending out odd radio signals intermittently. And um, apparently somebody used infrared photography out at Rollwright and, and caught some sort of a haze over one of the standing stones. Well, if you're an archaeologist or a geologist, you're seeing electromagnetic fuzz on the film. If you are a ghost hunter, you've seen a ghost hanging out on that rock. Again, frame of reference. Well, you know, Dave, it's, it's you know the Roll Wright Stones or England, and you know when we've had people like um, Maria Wheatley as a guest, she's talked about the ley lines connecting uh, Avebury and Stonehenge, and you know they're going under other uh, megalithic sites, the Glastonbury Tor. It, it you know, maybe it, it's an indication that the same people um, made a transatlantic crossing, and you know, became, uh, you know, were uh, aware of this phenomenon on both sides of the Atlantic, or you know, maybe. Uh, you know, just the people who were uh, living here saw, uh, you know, they uh, 
both cultures came to the same conclusions by making the same observations and you know built sacred sites on top of these um yeah. fissure well, I mean, sites yeah absolutely you you're you're hitting it straight on um oracle of delphi in uh i'm blanking on where some of these locations are all of a sudden um the all thing uh, is in um, Iceland. Iceland. The, uh, the circuit mounds, they're all associated with fault lines. It's like mm-hmm. the solar calendars. The sky only does so many things. So three diverse cultures who look at the sky are going to be marking solstices and equinoxes. They're going to be marking lunar alignments. There, there's only so many things you can do. And if they look similar... It doesn't mean that they traded notes. Some of them are separated by not only thousands of miles, they're separated by thousands of years. But, you know, the sun sets at the solstice. You really can't go much further than that and much further in the other direction. So you have the two solstices, side, but, you know, far end and far end. There's your calendar started right there. You can have a working solar calendar within three years. You just keep marking the furthest point. And then the second year, you verify those points. Third year is for those points you missed the second year because of weather. So in in theory, you could have a solar calendar up and running crudely in three years. I'll even be generous, say five years. It's when you start talking about the lunar calendars where a cycle takes over 18 years to complete. Mm-hmm. So 18 plus 18 plus 18. You're talking at least two generations of people, be it uh, Native Americans, be it settlers. That that's that's when you start saying, okay, who was here and how long? Up at Mystery Hill or America Stonehenge, um, they have stellar alignments. Because the North Star isn't, hasn't always been that star. As the Earth wobbles, it shifts from one star to another. And sometimes we don't have a true North Star. We have what's called a circumpolar star, where it goes around where North should be. Well, we've got stones up there that match up with that. So they, um, there was a Penn State astronomer named Lou Winkler, who calculated that it was matching up to a particular stone, and that stone had smaller stones on either side to mark the variations in the circle, and he was able to calculate pretty much what time that stone was erected based on what the North Star would have been at that time. So we can reverse engineer some of it. Okay, and... You, know, you just gave us a <clears throat> great demonstration of observations um, in your <clears throat> uh, the cockaponset carvings. Y- you're providing um, uh, other observations that. Um, uh, uh, maybe are the opposite of what is 
Uh, it's been observable to the Penn State and Harvard uh, astrophysics departments that lug all their equipment up to Dennis's place and do you know do their calculations. Oh, everything works. Uh, maybe we ought to do the same kind of deconstructing at the uh, Kakaponsets carvings and come to a different conclusion, but you know, this is your article in the current edition of Ancient American Magazine. You know, I think we can extract cont- uh, learn something from contexts from, from this article. So, yeah. Want to well, tell us a little I, bit about that? Well, you have to go back to 1952 to understand the whole story. That's when Frederick J. Pohl published The Lost Discovery. Uh, he, was, he was looking for Vikings in America. This is his, one of his earliest books. It's before he had found the Westford Knight and had decided Prince Henry Sinclair came over. He was still in his Viking. I'm a huge fan of, Frank, uh, of Frederick J. Pohl. I think most of his stuff has been uh, disproven, but I met him several times when he was a 101 years old. He was a delight to talk to. Um, his research on other topics is still considered to be the paradigm that you're working from. Uh, his biography of Shakespeare, for instance, is, is second to nobody. Paul published Lost Discovery. And again, it wasn't his first book, but it was the first one that went mainstream. He had a mainstream publisher. And he started getting fan mail. And people say, hey, what about this site? Could this be Viking? And one of them was in the Kakaponset State Forest, which is in Connecticut. And he put together a team to investigate it. And he got there. And it obviously was not Viking. Uh, he saw carvings that had no relationship to each other. That's his quote. And that's going to come back into play later. He found a, a stone throne. He found four-petaled flowers, um, troughs, oval balls, groupings of cupels, uh, and just symbols on the ledge. Now, he also found a plinth, or what he called a plinth. It's basically the base that a column sits on. And it was his idea that it was something else. But the problem with Fred Pohl was he had eight pots on the fire and two arms. Does that was starting to get interesting to him. He found that the Massachusetts Archaeology Society would excavate his proposed winter camp for Vikings in Cape Cod um, on the Bass River. And it was it, – they found something. It may have been Viking. It may not have been. It's been bulldozed over since. But by the point – by this point, he was discredited because of that article, of that excavation, and he kind of put Kakaponset site away. And then, you know, years later, he's 87, he's released what would turn out to be his final book, which is um, Prince Henry Sinclair, 
and he was starting to divide up his paperwork to divide the universities, and he came across the field note from Concaponset. But, you know, he's, he's, he's staring 90 down, and he really wasn't mobile anymore, and he certainly wasn't going to go wandering through the woods to some places remote as the Concaponset site. So he recruited, for lack of a better word, a member of the Leif Erikson Society of New York named John Gallagher. Um, Gallagher discovered that the Connecticut had bought the land and they had actually blazed walking trails. So it was actually pretty good walking. Fred Pohl probably could have done it. But Gallagher went through it and he was convinced the site was Celtic. And he sent his work to a name we all know and love, Barry Fell, who had just hit the bestseller list with America BC. Right. Um, Paul didn't like the direction that Gallagher was going in, and he didn't like Barry Fell at all. So he published his notes in the Anthropological Journal of Canada. And it mentions another one of those key little pieces of information that the locals said that there were a couple of sculpted heads on the site. So he comes back, and again, he's not happy with the direction Gallagher is going with, but he publishes a longer piece in Epigraphic Society and kind of just walks away from it. He's done his thing. And um, that's as far as it went until Gallagher saw his article in Epigraphic and then wrote a follow-up article, again, in Epigraphic Society. And he was very careful. He had decided that regardless of what Fred Pohl said, it was a religious site. But he doesn't mention the missing heads. Fell translated a series of carvings near... um, in Morocco, which he considered to be 535 A.D., and it refers to monks who had returned from exile. Fell publishes this material. Norm Toten of early sites decides that the place where they came from, Asquashamal, is actually North America. So Gallagher runs with this and decides that the Kakaponset site is a friary from these Moroccan monks in the 4th century AD. And by this point, it's like, oh, boy, it's get, it's getting complicated. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yes. Um, Gallagher never published these notes until um, On-Site Magazine. And if you remember On-Site Magazine, you're as old as I am. It was a very short-lived group uh, newsletter from the American Institute for Archaeological Research. And the best I can give you about this group is they once translated bulldozer scrapings in the parking lot at Mystery Hill as being Ogham. I was there with Dennis, and and we both literally looked at these carvings after the uh, bulldozer scraped it up because they would re-gravel every year the parking lot and said, you know, some idiot's going to translate that. Sure enough. But 
that's the story of my life as in a nutshell. Um, and then it just goes off in different ideas. Basically, Gallagher's saying it's Byzantine. And it shows up once in a great while in, in articles. In fact, in ancient America, it showed up. Our, our alma mater. Mm-hmm. And um, that's Gallagher again. I think it was it's like 2003, 2004 it published. It's way back. But by this point, he is completely convinced it's Moroccan exile, setting up a church in Connecticut. And then being allowed to go back to Morocco, they just abandon everything. Um, Charles Mark, uh, Charles Michael Boland's big book, They All Discovered America, mentions it vaguely, connects it with a really weird site a little further up the road, the Assawapsit Pond site in Massachusetts, where there's a carving, which he's claiming is a Phoenician ship anchor carved on the side of the rock. Problem is, that would be about 2,000 years later. So we've got this ungodly mess at this point in time. We've got Moroccans, we've got Vikings, we've got Celtic, we've got this one translating it, this one translating it. Somebody tried to tie it into the Gunji Womp. Somebody else tried to tie it into William Goodwin's Irish monk theory. The one person who never wrote about the site was a fellow named Bernard Powell. Bernard Powell was one of the top amateur archaeologists in the state of Massachusetts and Connecticut. And he was a student at the time, and he remembered the site quite well, because when Frederick Paul called you up and said, we're going on an adventure, pack your flashlight, you got your flashlight and waited for the car. Um, Boland, while Fred Pohl is sitting there trying to figure this all out, went wandering around exploring, and he went up to the top of the hill where there was a gardener working in the formal gardens. And he says, you you know, he's making small talk. This is a beautiful garden you have here. And he, he says, thank you. And he's looking around, and there in the middle of a, a hedge maze around a rose garden, it has this... Doric style pedestal with a carved head on it. The guy, where the heck that came from? And he says, Oh, down at the bottom of the hill, there used to be a, a, a place where the tombstone makers used to practice their carving. There was a large company up in New Haven that sent their apprentices down to that area, which is still known for its limestone. They And they would just practice carving limestone that wouldn't involve their money because it was on the rock. So at this point in time, um, the stolen heads are probably from these people. The columns are. But there's not a shred of proof one way or the other. So, you, so it, it's pre-Christian, Phoenician, Moroccan, or Victorian carving at the in the style of that time which happened to be greek revival take your pick you like one you can find enough evidence to support yourself uh, that's a 
you know, you have a photo of what's that's one of looks yeah, like that's one of John Gallagher's carvings. Yeah, uh, I think you have a, it, that article gives us you know, a, a, you know the comprehensive look at yeah. What just goes remember on... that was the short version I just gave you. <laughs> no, it, but but it, it you know the, the you know the couple pages that you did ha- have published it 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 does serve as a lesson about you know looking at all aspects of you know, uh, you know uh, th- these claims of ancient uh, travelers coming to America and you know you know, d- hey, you know d- don't forget to you know c- consider that you know, maybe there was a Victorian business where you have the apprentices that you know working uh, nearby uh, on Greek uh, revivals uh, sculptures. I, you know, the, I I thought it was, you know, what you wrote was an important article illustrating that, and yeah, you know, because you do have a lot of people with, uh, you know, I've encountered quite a few people with, you know, pareidolia and you know the sudden proliferation oh, yeah. of of wizards and all, all these people are looking for something that isn't there. Yeah. Well, the problem is also in my case it's the opposite problem. I'll follow a trail to so far off the trail that I don't know where I am anymore. Um, that's I usually uh, the Tuesday night shows. By William Goodwin. Yeah. Absolutely fascinated by William Goodwin. Um, I don't think he was as bad as people say he was. I mean, yeah, all right, he did some nasty excavation work, but no worse than anybody else in that time period. He bought the America Stonehenge site because he thought it was Viking, because he had already come up with an idea that Vinland was Portsmouth Harbor. And the problem was it doesn't take long to figure out once you're up there, this is not Viking. So he came up with a second theory that it was Great Ireland, that this was the Irish that attacked the Vikings. And the Vikings terrified the Irish monks, and so they moved inland. And every time the Vikings got near, they would move further inland. And the Irish monks were therefore using missionary tactics to convert the Native Americans. But to get to the Native Americans, they had to follow the Indian trails, which is why Goodwin hired a professional to do a history of all the Indian trails in southern New England because those were the trails his his Irish monks used. Coincidentally, that's where all of his stone sites were. So... He's saying the stone sites were built by the Irish monks as part of their travel process to visit the Indians. On the other hand, if you take the Irish monks out of the equation, what you end up with is 
Indian trails that have stone structures near them, which by itself is just as interesting, if not more so. But he did a lot of good. I mean, I hate to. I, I'll probably come. I'll probably come back to regret this at some point in the future. But William Goodwin, with his network of contacts and people he supported and underwrote and encouraged is kind of like H.P. Lovecraft in that his body of work is not that big, but his and his support and his tutelage had a much greater impact than just his body of work. And I think that describes Goodwin just as easily. Dave, how do we go from you know legitimate site like uh, America Stonehenge to uh, you know doubtful Moroccan Phoenician occupation of the the Kakaponset uh, area to understanding the Westford Knight uh, carving. Uh, that you know that that one seems to be in the news. Um, you know a little bit, I guess. You know, uh, you know you've uh, at, far more than I uh, wish t- it was. Yeah, you've. Uh, d- uh, Extended your research on it. Uh, What is the story with that one? We uh, we haven't really covered that one on either one of our nightlight shows. Well, you've come to the right place. Okay, lay it on us. (laughs) Are you you sure you're recovered from the cockapontit stuff? Yeah. The, the Westford Knight is a carving on the bedrock along a major road in Westford, Massachusetts. That's the short version. Originally, the, the locals considered it to be an um, Indian carving. And that has come back to haunt them. However, and we're going to start hearing the same names over and over again. That particular site was explored by one of William Goodwin's associates because he was looking for Indian sites. He heard it was an Indian, so he went there, and what they saw, they thought it looked like a broken sword. Now, a broken sword, time was believed to be a symbol of a Viking who had fallen in battle and was buried nearby. He wasn't buried there because it's a solid ledge. But that photograph was then given to William Goodwin, who put it in his last book, The Ruins of Great Ireland in New England, which, for the record, is a horrible, horrible book. Um, William Goodwin was sick, um, probably far more illness than anybody realized. And they wanted he wanted to get the book out before he died. He, he lasted a, almost a year afterwards, but 
This was also during the war years when there were paper shortages. So they got the situation where they were able to secure the paper, and they didn't have a book. Goodwin was too sick to work on it, so they literally went into his office, grabbed all the files, grabbed all the paper, shoved it in a pile, and gave it to the publisher. So this broken sword is not identified where it was found. It's just in the book. There are also pages upon pages of plagiarized material because he didn't have photocopiers in the 40s, so he was having his secretary transcribe stuff. And whoever pulled all the files together didn't know what it was. So if I had all the time in the world and a publisher willing to do it, I would reprint his book, but I would fix it. The, the picture is the important part in this particular case because a few years later, Glenn is a name that uh, New England archaeology know well. He was president of the Connecticut uh, Archaeology Society. Um, he was convinced that there was a Bronze Age culture in New England that was colonizing. He didn't know which one, but he thought there was one. And he had begun corresponding with an English archaeologist by the name of uh, Lethbridge, T.C. Lethbridge. And as part of their correspondence, Frank Glenn sends Lethbridge a copy of Ruins of Great Ireland to show him what the the Mystery Hill site looked like, because that's really where he was focusing. Lethbridge looks at this book, realizes 90% of it is garbage, but hones in on that picture of a sword and says, that's the most important thing in the book, because that is a medieval-style sword. You need to find that and see what's there. So Frank goes looking for it, finally finds it a few years later, and sends the photographs to Lethbridge. Lethbridge said, is that all there is? He, and Glenn says, yeah, a hilt and a piece of the sword. He says, strip away some of the mold and the dirt and the lichen. See what's underneath it. So Glenn uncovers the whole ledge and starts filling in all the peck marks and comes up with a life-size effigy of a knight in armor that is evidence of a 14th century style. Okay. Lethbridge looks at this and says, I don't know who it is, but this is, this is big because this is, not, this is not something you find in North America. This is, if anything, it, it's similar to um, the Scottish burial effigies, which were two-dimensional peck stones. Glynn keeps working on it, and eventually they send a copy of the knight's shield to a heraldry expert who looks at it and says, it is not currently in use, but based on the imagery on this, that is the symbol of a chieftain of the gun clan. Gun clan is northern Scotland. And they own territory right next to a name, the Sinclairs. And by this point, the Sinclairs were known for Henry 
who had been claimed by other researchers to be Prince Zikmi of the Zeno narrative, therefore, continuing the logic here, this is evidence that Henry Sinclair was indeed Zikmi, had come with the Zeno brothers to North America, and there's your evidence. Somebody from the party was climbing to the top of this hill for a view of the area and died. And they carved an effigy where he fell. Considering this guy is wearing quilted armor with a uh, full helmet, full shield, full two-and-a-half-hand bastard sword, uh, the guy probably killed over from heat exhaustion or a heart attack. But um, that was the start of it. That's understandable. Now, the the problem with... Henry Sinclair is his grandson, Henry Sinclair, who built a little building you may have heard of called the Roslyn Chapel. Right. And it doesn't take long for someone to say, hey, these stylized carvings in the Roslyn Chapel, which may or may not actually be ancient, they may have been from an 1850s restoration – These are North American plants. Therefore, somebody in the Sinclair family did indeed go to North America. Oh, wait, didn't his grandfather go to North America? The the Sinclairs later became high mucky mucks in the Freemasons, which is how you get the Freemasons and the Knights Templar and the Lost Grail going from France to uh, Scotland, and then over to North America. It's a very complicated story. But all it is, and the problem now is Franklin uncovered it. You know, the, the lichen's gone, the, the dirt is gone, and it's a very soft ledge. And it's eroding badly to the point where most people can't see anything but the sword. So they have erected a protective case around it. But because they don't see the carving, they didn't cover the whole body of the knight. They only covered the sword. So there's actually faster damage being done now. I'm very unhappy with these say-so in my book. But now you've got the whole... Go ahead. Oh, I was... I, I didn't... I don't know if you were done. I, I always just wanted to a- ask: you know, do, do you think this, uh, the Westford Knight carving, is legitimate, or do we have to buy the Ooh. book? Ooh, uh, you know what? You can buy the book all you want, but I don't believe I make a commitment in the book. One of the great advantages of being a historian without their own agenda is you can just present the information and let people draw their own conclusions. Now, I have no problem with this being a century Scottish knight effigy. I do have a problem with it being attached to the Knights Templar or the Freemasons or any of the other nonsense that's come out in the last few years about it. So 
where you stand on that line, I may or may not agree with you. So it, it was featured on one of uh, Scott's America Unearthed uh, shows. Uh, the very last one before he changed networks, as a matter of fact. Oh, is that it? Okay, and I don't think the, the protective uh, 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 casing was installed by Scott's filming. Uh, no, it, no, but it, 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 it would have removed it. Oh, uh, well, uh, okay, that could have happened too. But it it. it it is protected now, and is it along a street, or where is it located? It is located along Depot Road, which is one of the busiest roads in town. It's actually on the road leading to and from the center of town. And um, but a point of clarification, the protection that the night has does not cover the whole night. It covers mostly just the sword. If you look at the full size Glenn chalked in, which is on the cover of my book, Plug Plug, um, it's much bigger. It is much, much bigger than what they've protected. Now, Scott Walter came because there's a couple of local Scott Walter fans and I cringe when I say this. They were power washing the ledge. Oh, geez. Which, which I repeat, is soft. It's laced with andalusite. Andalusite powders and washes away like talcum powder. And they decided they saw one of Scott Walter's hooked X's on the carving. And... You said the magic word, paranoia, or in this case, maybe paranoia, but nonetheless. Um, The problem is it does not look like it's deliberate. It looks like it's just scrapes and scratches. It's located in a spot where for years the night was protected during the winter by dropping a wooden cover over him. And the spot where the divot that makes the center of the hooked X's located is actually about where one of the bolts that held the sides of this slab of wood together was located. And if you drop that thing down because it's heavy rather than lower it gently, it's going to leave a divot in that soft rock. So I'm, I'm not convinced there's a hooked X there to start with. And that was enough that's how I ended up with three new chapters in this edition of the book. Um, Oak Island ran with it. Uh, Scott Walter ran with it. I'm probably missing somebody else. But it's all it took to get it into the mainstream again. And Oh, well. It's showbiz. Yeah. I'm the only okay. one who won't do television on the Westford night, by the way. They have. They do ask occasionally, and I keep telling them, "Have you read my book?" And they go, "No." Uh, should we? I said, "You're doing a, 
TV show about the Knights Templar in North America, and almost half of my book is debunking the Knights Templar coming to North America based on the evidence they're presenting. Whether they came or not is not my problem. If you get your facts right, I'll back you. You're not getting your facts right. Oh, now if you want me to do your TV show, I'd be more than happy to, but I'm not going to say what you want me to say. And then I never hear from them again. Go figure. Okay, so... um, That's noble trait, just... Hey, you, you're just going to tell the truth, not what they want to hear to make a popular show. Well, I'm going to say something I probably will get shot for saying, but the Westford Knight book I have is an academic title. It was published by an academic press. They are not interested in selling it to the general public. Consequently, I could go on the show and I could say that aliens transported the Knights Templar to North America and it would not sell any more or less copies of my book. Actually, it might sell fewer, but um, it won't increase the sales of the book. It's just not designed for that market. So I have no reason to lie or try to sell books because it's not going to impact my sales. It's it's noble, perhaps, but it's also pragmatic. Okay. Well, uh, the dirty secret of publishing. Next. Okay. Uh, you know, let's uh, change gears a little bit, and let's look at your approach to. Sea monster, uh, hundreds of years of sea monster reportings in uh, the southeastern states of uh, in the United States. Uh, I think it's a terrific book. Thank you. Yeah, it's another extension of yeah the context and yeah you know. When people are uh, reporting the sea monsters, okay, I'm sure, you know, there uh, might be some things we uh, just don't understand uh, because there's you know, hardly anyone has been down to to these depths, and who, who you know, who, who knows what comes to the surface on, on occasion, just to look around. But mm-hmm. uh, we, you know, we also need to take into consideration the uh, what we call them globsters, you know, the rotting corpses that you know, are misidentified as having like eight flippers, and you know, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize, uh, you know, the octopi that have. You know, they can't have these like vibrations to their walks. Um, it's not like I'm around octopuses a lot, but um, I, I, no, I, I I was not. I a... don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's uh, the uh, you know we sh- shouldn't forget the uh, 
squid egg sacs that are translucent and the omnipresent oh, sea cucumbers. Yeah, I mean, what I like about the Sea Serpent book is that there is stuff in there that nobody else has covered. Partly uh, because... Yeah, you can say that again. <laughs> and you're talking about one of my favorites, the squid sack, the squid egg mass. Um, that was originally spotted by a fellow named Richard Weiner, who of all things, is best known for a book called The Devil's Triangle. Richard Weiner investigated the Bermuda Triangle. In the, He was one of the thousands of books that came out after Charles Berlitz went to the bestseller. Richard Weiner believed that the Bermuda Triangle was no different than any other spot in the ocean, and most of the cases that of disappearances were due to stupid boaters, airplane errors, and just the weird weather you get in Florida. That was his theory. Unfortunately, that's not how the book sounds if you look at the cover. It's got this breathless hyperbole about these disappearances and everything, but it's a very tame book because he doesn't believe in any of the disappearances. And, but Richard Weiner was a diver, and he was down there, and he saw something, and he couldn't explain it. And anybody he talked to, and this is in the 70s, couldn't explain it. Here we are, what, 30, 40, 50 years later, we now have more knowledge of the ocean. 50 years is a long time to gather data. And what he's describing is a squid egg mass. It is basically a ball of mucus filled with little baby squids. And it obviously becomes circular because there's no gravity. It's balanced out. And they basically float up until they reach buoyancy at some point where the, the salt water and cold water meet the warmer, less salty water layers. In the, Bermuda, in the Bermuda Bahamas area, and they only last for three days, so they've, there's only a handful of them that have ever been seen. So, yeah, that's, nobody, else has, nobody else has tackled that one yet. I'm very it, proud it, of that one. Yeah, it's... Uh, but, but, but it can't be discounted when people... <laughs> Uh, you know, make these claims, and you know, you would ex. You know, your book has uh, numerous examples of you know people, you know, from the forties, fifties, and sixties, uh, pleasure boating, um, in you know, uh, yeah, the Gulf of Mexico or in the Atlantic, uh, you know, you get uh. Uh, Ernest Hemingway doing his deep sea fishing and all, you know, okay, but I I, I didn't realize that it, it, there there was that much, um, uh, you know, pleasure boating in like the 1890s and some of the uh, reports that were uh, 
you know, made at at that time, and you know, so, so some of them were pretty interesting. Uh, you know, of course, we're back to uh, Victorian era people uh, you know, just didn't have the understanding of you know, like the uh, squid egg sacks that uh, we today. Oh. But, but, but you know, they, they, they were seeing something. Yeah. Well, the best example I can give you of what you're describing is the, uh, the yacht Valhalla. Uh, the Valhalla was one of the most exclusive and gorgeous yachts in the Royal Yacht Society of England. And the gentleman who owned it, being a wealthy, to do man loaned it out because he could I mean this it was Lord Crawford and it I mean it was a it's still a gorgeous ship I've seen the pictures it's it's like 250 feet long three masted he used it for three things one to impress people with how rich he was very important two he used it to race other yachts and three, he loaned it out for science expeditions because as the patron of a scientific expedition, if they find anything, they name it after you, which goes back to number one. You're rich. Now you also have a species named after you. And the Valhalla was actually down in Brazil. It had two seasoned British zoologists on board. And it was a specimen collection trip. And they spotted a fin off the ship, 10 o'clock in the morning, clear, bright. It was roughly rectangular, but it was about six feet long and about two feet high. Um, and they're thinking, that's one big shark you got there coming this way. And then... A head on a long neck rose out of the water in front of the shark fin. It was as thick as a man's body. It was seven or eight feet out of the water, and the head and the neck were all about the same size. The head kind of looked like a turtle shape, and you see a lot of that description. Sea serpents seem to be described as either having a head like a turtle or a head like an alligator. It moved its head around. It looked around. They could see there was a big body under the water, but they couldn't get the specific shape. The ship was under sail, so they couldn't come about for a closer look, and they actually just passed out of visual range. Now, this would this is pretty typical of description. You know, we saw something, we don't recognize it, and then we didn't see it anymore. The difference is... Michael J. Nickel and E.G.B. Mead Waldo. They are they are well known zoologists in Britain. These are not guys who casually misidentify something. So there's that's an example of one that no matter how doubtful you are or how suspicious you are of a sea serpent sighting, that one's hard to explain. Others are not. That one I is tough. So, yeah, and when you know you have 
just numerous samples where okay uh like that that one uh i i I don't know what to make of it uh some of these other ones that you 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 bring up uh you know the globsters and it it it's you know that example is Oh, it was very interesting where you're talking about a out of the the animal actually poisoned itself. Uh, uh, that's yeah. an uh, yeah a really unusual case to oh. study. Uh, okay, so we you know just got something that you know. Okay, I, I, that's something legitimate that we, you know, we uh, really don't have an explanation for. But, but with this globster example, uh, what's the story behind that? It, I, I love globsters. You, you're just picking all my favorites tonight. I hope you appreciate that. I certainly do. That's. Uh, uh, that's why uh, blog talk double my salary. Oh, so you're still losing money. Yeah, that's uh, how it works. The term, ter- well, welcome to my writing world. Uh, the term globster was coined by Ivan Sanderson, and he basically used it to describe a creature they had found in New Zealand back in 1960. And then he basically applied it retroactively to anything else that fit the criteria. It's basically a massive organic material that washes up on shore. If there's a skeleton or enough body parts to identify it, it's a carcass. A whale washes up on shore. That's a whale carcass. But a globster, by definition, is unidentifiable. Now, the one you're describing with the poison is actually the, uh, the, one of the Bermuda blobs, the second one, I believe. Um, and it's a, it was a fascinating case because they didn't know what it was, but they knew how it died. It was found toward the end of a, uh, an epidemic of a particular type of fungus in the, in the uh, Bahamian Seas. Or Bermudian seeds, excuse me, got to get my islands right. And this fungus was attacking a soft coral known as the sea fan. Now, sea fan is eaten, is being eaten, eaten, is eaten by a flamingo tongue snail, as an example. That's a major predator of the sea fan. That is eaten by a hogfish. And hogfish are eaten by whales. Well, the tongue fish, you know, the uh, flamingo tongue snail is eating the poison fungus. It's transferring to the hogfish, who's being eaten by the whale. The whale is eventually going to build up to toxic levels. Now, of course, I'm telling you it's a whale, so I'm kind of spoiling what the blob is. But it basically eats enough of these contaminated fish 
with this particular fungus, it develops a pulmonary disease. So they knew what killed it even before they knew what it was. Then jump forward a few decades. In 2003, they found another globster in Chile. But this time, they were able to rush it back into laboratories and do the testing, and it was sperm whale DNA. They were known creatures. And they still wash up every so often. It's, uh, sperm whale is actually the most famous of the, the globsters, the St. Augustine sea monster, or the giant octopus, depending on whose side of the story you are. And that was just basically a globster that washed up on the beach in Florida. And they immediately assumed that it was a giant octopus because it had no bones. And they even saw what they thought looked like maybe tentacles had been bitten off. But it was, a certain, it was the sperm tank from a sperm whale. When you butcher a whale... In the 1890s, you basically took the sperm whale, you emptied the sperm tank, which is the good stuff. That's where you're making the candles and the medicines and the oils out of. And then you discard the rest of the whale. You're not eating it. You're just, you know, it's or you take the, the spermata out of it. Well, the whale will decompose. Sharks will eat it. Parts will fall to the ocean. Other people will eat it. But that sperm tank is pure collagen. It's a big old mess of collagen, and that is the toughest of all of the various body parts to decompose. So these things wash ashore. And it does kind of look like a sea monster in the sense that it could be a giant jellyfish. It could be a giant octopus, but it isn't. It's just... Parts is parts, to use the quote. And the collagen just is not going anywhere. But they have all of the ones they had access to, the St. Augustine Sea Monster, the two blobsters from Bermuda, um, the Chilean one. In fact, there was one up on uh, Nantucket they even tested so they've done all the testing, and it always turns out to be a known whale's DNA. The problem is most of these lobsters, nobody cares. But then you get to that St. Augustine one, and that has been around for over 100 years. I think we're coming up on 130 years that one's been – people have been arguing about it. There are still people who are convinced it was a giant octopus. Most of the cryptozoology people no longer believe this, but you've still got some hardcore people. And that's kind of what the problem is nowadays with cryptozoology, because everybody has the Internet. And even though it's been proven to be a fraud, an accidental fraud in this case, they won't let go of it. It's a giant octopus. Well, it's got the whale DNA. It's has no internal structures of an octopus. It has no tentacles. Okay, that is one weird octopus you're talking about. But it's not just that one. I mean, there were other cases where you just, 
people won't let it go. Uh, the, probably the most famous one of which is the Clearwater Three Toe, which was a series okay, of footprints found along the ocean. That's all it was. Nobody ever saw the critter. There were people who said they saw something they couldn't recognize, but half of the ones I saw descriptions for were manatees, for the most part, which if you – I mean, that's a tourist area. But the guy who built the shoes out of cast iron in his father's foundry has been interviewed a thousand times about this. His son is still being interviewed about it. Lauren Coleman has a sample of one of the shoes footprints in the museum up in Portland, Maine, the International Cryptozoology Museum. But there are still people who are convinced that it, the people who say they were the cause are the hoax and that there really was something wandering around the beach. Now, Ivan Sanderson first published that it was a fraud. And somewhere along this line, decided that it was too good of a story to let die just because it was wrong, and started telling people it was a giant penguin. Picture that for a minute, if you will. A 12-foot-tall penguin wandering around the beaches of California. Wandering around the beaches of Florida. Wandering around the beaches of Cuba. Yet nobody has seen this giant penguin. How curious. But there are still people even uh, within the last five or six years who have published books about Florida cryptids that are claiming that was a legitimate unknown creature who just happened to be using cast iron shoes, bolted to sneakers, and walking around the beach at night. It's a fun story, by the way. I, I just yeah. have this mental image of the giant penguin wandering around. <laughs> but, you know, some uh, other points that you, you, know, you bring up through throughout um uh, Sun, sand, and sea monsters is the importance of geography in these settings. Uh, you get the inner uh, coastal waterway. You get uh, some areas of it are freshwater. You get a little, you know, a little bit of seawater coming into you know, certain. Uh, stretches so you, you, you might have different species of animals living in certain you know where you know there are certain types of water uh, you, you know, a lot of lakes really aren't that deep to yeah, have I mean, a, a yeah. sea monster the best example of that is the largest river in little old Florida called the St. John's. It runs over 300 miles, flows north, which is uh, Indian River, Vero Beach area, flows north. It is extremely shallow. It is extremely slow. It is so slow that when you get about halfway, 
it actually starts to form lakes in the middle of itself, which again are not deep lakes. And then it continues north, and then it makes a hard turn to the east and empties out into the um, Atlantic Ocean just beyond Jacksonville. It is, again, a slow-moving river. It is a shallow river, and it barely drops 30 feet from head to mouth. That is that is basically flat. And the bottom part, which would have originally been part of the Everglades and now is part of the Lake Okeechobee drainage area, is swampy, still is. There's not much you're going to do about it. It's swampy. And there's a very rich flora and fauna in spite of all the condominiums. And the estuaries are full of animals. It's a a big area for fishermen. That is swamp. You go into the middle section, shallow and lakes. And when I say shallow lakes, when they used to run steamboats up and down this river, they had to dredge it continually. And you did not vary from the channel they dug because you were going to go aground. It was that kind of a shallowness. And then you get up around St. Ja- uh, St. Jackson, uh, Jacksonville, and again, it is such a slow, shallow river that when the tides are high, it almost it reverses direction, and you get salt water flowing in. So you've got three different ecosystems. You've got swamp, shallow river water, brackish water, and yet. People are still trying to say the same creature is in that river, and it's not. There's a, the Treasure Coast area, the, the uh, headwater, is filled with very unusual snake reports. And I'm not talking about the invasive ones we have, like the, the anacondas and the constrictors. I'm talking about very thick, very large and apparently completely unconcerned as to whether they're in salt water or fresh water because they're crossing over the land as well. The middle section has manatees, which is usually a clue uh, to what half of your sea monster sort sightings are. But they had a separate critter who was big and blocky and very gray and apparently could get in and out of the water, which means it's not a manatee. And then you get up around Jacksonville, where you have the one I affectionately say is the luckiest sea monster on the planet. They call him Pinky. That's not the lucky part. Pinky was seen by a woman on a fishing boat. She called to the other people in the boat to say, hey, look at this, and it disappeared. There's a storm coming in. They start to turn the boat around to head home, and then they all see it. This pinky, which was – it had a skeletal look. The skin was all pulled back. It had little horns. was hot pink. One One of the witnesses said it described it as boiled shrimp pink. And that became the one that went national. 
Yet, the the all the witnesses who saw it at the same time barely saw it for for you know ten fifteen seconds. And the add the other woman's initial sighting. This is a monster that was only seen for twenty seconds, once. And yet, it's this pink monster is getting grouped in with uh, round-headed serpentine monsters and the Lake Aster monster, which is uh, big and blocky and gray, and all these other monsters. Lauren Coleman, the um, probably the leading cryptozoologist of our time, runs the International Cryptozoology Museum up in Portland. He came down to investigate Pinky, and he discovered that river's too shallow for the type of creatures that he was expecting to find. And yet, they're all now called the St. John's River Monster, singular. So the St. John's River Monster, according to this material, is pink or gray or black or green. It's either big or shrunken or snake-like. That's what's happening right now in the, in the Florida situation. The monster sightings are being homogenized into one um, archetypal monster when they don't fit together. I mean, there's, there's, I have a suspicion that the Aster monster was probably an elephant seal that was, uh, had wandered out of its normal areas and had just gone up on the shore to shed because elephant seals molt once a year. And there's no way that that was pinky. And there's no way to mistake something that big for a snake. So you definitely have multiple sightings of multiple monsters on one river despite the best efforts of the newspapers and some of the more recent books to make it into one monster that's been there for 150 years. They all come in segments. There's no 170 years of sea monsters in St. John's River does not mean it's a breeding colony. Not when one's pink, one's green, one's black, and one's gray. So that one always bothers me. And part of that is... That's a that's a migration area for manatees. So if you've never seen a manatee stick its head out of the water and do a peck walk, that's when they use their front legs to sort of drag themselves out of the water a little bit because sometimes you want a little variety in your salad. If you've never seen one do that, you're not going to recognize it as a manatee, and that's how you get a sea monster. Yeah, it, it, Hey, since since you just mentioned uh, Lauren Coleman came down to investigate the Pinky sightings, um, you know, uh, Lauren also wrote the foreword to your book. Uh, you know, what, you know, I had a brief meeting with him. Uh, uh, Three years ago at the Mothman Festival, you know, put on a, a great uh, PowerPoint presentation and had a chance to say hi to him for about 20 seconds after 
Uh, presentation. <laughs> oh, yeah, very nice, Scott. But you know, what's your uh, uh, connection with Lauren? It is at best a casual connection. Um, I I don't even know why I originally was asked, but his very first international cryptozoology conference was in St. Augustine, which is only a, a I think it's a four-hour drive from me. I mean, I'm down in the boondocks of southern Florida. And he asked if I would come up and, you know, if I wanted to do a table as a vendor. Well, I suppose I have no books on sea monsters, but I have no books on cryptozoology as a whole. You know, I've got archaeology. I had the Old Westford Night book. I had the Mystery Hill book. I had some horror guides um, to Florida. That's the closest I came to something that was appropriate. I had a table. I had a, It's in the speaking area. There was no separate vendor's room. I had a grand old time listening to these people. And after it was done, um, he I mentioned I had done a little work on the St. Augustine Sea Monster, but not as a cryptozoologist, but as a Lovecraft scholar because it turns out H.P. Lovecraft knew about the St. Augustine monster which by itself is very telling but it's a completely different tangent so when he was doing the first journal for the crypto conference um, the gentleman who had planned to do the St. Augustine monster, uh, St. Augustine Sea giant octopus or whatever they're calling it now was unable to attend. He was actually uh, flying in from France. And so he asked if I would do it. And I did it. And I think I trimmed about uh, 6,000 words off of the, and put it in this book. It's a very large chapter. It's about a 9,000 word chapter. So it's one of the bigger ones, but it's it's got such a history to it. And that was that was the start of it. Um, I'm really not much for land-based cryptozoology. And frankly, having seen and met some of the Florida skunk ape people, I'm okay with letting them play in the swamps. I'll, I'll just sit on the beach and watch. <laughs> people are very, very, aggressively protective of their Bigfoot theories. I mean, they've got their own TV shows. They've, they've got their own museums. They've got their own specialists. I'm cool. I don't, I don't need to step on anybody's field. I, that's, that's big and deep a topic for somebody to just jump in and start doing a history. So there will never be a history of land monsters in Florida coming from me. It's just, that's too big a topic between dog boys and skunk apes and everything else we got down here. Okay. Well, so, uh, you know, we'll shift from uh, the swamps and land-based cryptids and, you know, return to the sea and, you know, you, you, yeah, you bring up the giant Juno worm, and part 
probably uh, next uh, or uh, in April, uh, one of our guests might be talking about the Mongolian death worm. Um, is there any uh, connection there? Uh, uh, I'm, not, you... I'm not familiar with the, the specifics of the death worm, other than, you know, it's a worm and it's in Mongolia and you don't want to cross it. That's why it's the death worm. Um, but, you know, <laughs> but, it's a desert worm. Where this is an underwater nematode. It's a very unusual aquatic creature, but it's probably a known species. It's just extraordinarily large for what it is. And I've never a, heard of this one. It's It's not one that made a lot – it made a lot of local news. Because um, much to the aggravation of the Smithsonian, who said, we can't identify it because your underwater footage doesn't show us the parts we need to see, like a head or reproductive organs. or And he decided to run with that as the Smithsonian is stumped as to what we found. Smithsonian has no sense of humor about that sort of thing, by the way. And but it, it's not a cryptid in the sense unknown animal. It is a new species, and it's a fascinating one because you know how often do you see a twelve foot worm wandering around on the bottom of your scuba diving tank? But it brings up an interesting point about cryptozoology. It's not just the Bigfoot and the sea monsters. It's finding extinct animals like the ivory-billed woodpecker. It's, you know, unfortunately, Bigfoot and sea monsters get all the press, but there are a lot more tiny little creatures being found these days. But unfortunately, when you find a new type of frog in the Andes Mountains that's the size of a nickel, it just doesn't gather the media attention. So that's kind of where the Juno worm falls into. It's 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 new, it's exciting, but it's not necessarily a completely unknown. It's just a variation on a species that's probably existing. Could be a whole new subspecies, but again, Smithsonian's not going to name it until they see a better shot of it. Yeah, you know, well, so we 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 use that name. Yeah, the the yeah, that reminds me. You know, talking about new species. You know, th- th- there was that. Uh, oh, I, I mean, about five years ago, there was that. Uh, you know, it was like a three, four foot long, like ribbon shark that was photographed. Uh, I think it was in Japan, Samoa, so, somewhere like the. In, oh, yeah. in the Pacific, uh, what was the deal with that? Uh, called an oarfish, because its 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 fins move like an oar does, and they they can grow up to sixty seventy feet. Wow! They're, they're a fish, but they move through the water kind of more like a snake, and they have a bright red fin down the entire length of them, and then a silver body. They're they're 
two different species. In fact, um, the one in Japan, they believe, um, folklore in Japan says that if you see oarfish on the surface, it means you're going to have an earthquake. And they actually had somebody do the research and said, nope, just folklore which is probably a good thing because California sees a lot of these things washing up on shore. And I'd hate to think there's an earthquake every time they find one. But that is a a classic example of something that probably shouldn't be considered a cryptid. It's just a very rare, unusual fish. I think somebody did an inventory, and there's only been like 250 of them spotted, mostly washing up on the shore. Um, they, they seem to be of, in the Gulf of Mexico. They're definitely in the Pacific. In fact, I think there's this argument that they're two different species. But it's a it's a it's a massive critter. But I think that one. I'm not sure where that would fit in the in the chain of what is or isn't a uh, cryptid. I mean, you have living fossils which are things that have not changed in millions of years. You look at a a two-million-year-old fossil, it's the same critter. Um, An example of that would be the frilled shark. And then you have Lazarus species, which is a species that everybody assumed had died off until they found it again. The most famous of those is the coelacanth. Now, everybody mm-hmm. thought the coelacanth died off, you know, 45 million years ago until they started finding them. And then you've got the cryptids, and then you start dividing the cryptids. You've got uh, extinct you have creatures that are extinct, but are they really? And you have creatures, um, and there, there's a lot of those, particularly down here. Um, there have always been reports that the ivory-billed woodpecker survived, and it's still in the Everglades. You still get reports of the Caribbean hooded monk seal, which has never thrived since mankind showed up. I mean, Columbus killed off eight or nine of them, and it's been downhill ever since. And they were never aggressive. And then there's another interesting approach to this, which is how did something become extinct? Now there was a there's a type of a seal called a swan-necked seal, which could have survived in the modern age, but mankind started killing off the whales, and when they started killing off the whales, the sharks started going after smaller critters, and when the sh- whales start to get slaughtered by man, the sharks turn their attention, and that's when you start seeing the declines in population for seals and sea lions, and if any of the swan-necked seals had survived, they would have been first to go, because they apparently were not nimble. But the description of them matches what you would see, like a plesiosaur. It's got the the head on the long neck coming out of the water. But it was a very shallow water seal. Probably with that neck, it couldn't go ashore very much, if at all. That that's good eating if you're a great white shark. 
So there, there, there's all sorts of applications to cryptozoology. And in a perfect world, it fits in as a subfield of actual zoology. But, you know, you know, it's hard for somebody who's studying the lung structure of an amphibian to get excited over some guy on television claiming he found Bigfoot. So I don't think you're ever going to see the two of them really coming to the table together. You do see some zoologists working in cryptozoology. Carl Shooker is a good example. Um, and he's okay with some of these creatures existing, but try to try to do sloppy work with him, and boy, you're going to hear about it. So cryptozoology needs to be more self-regulating. It was for a long time. Um, cryptozoology societies were very stringent as to what they would publish. And, of course, they're all gone now for the most part. The only one left is really the International Cryptozoology Society, which works closely with the museum up in Portland, but it's really not aggressively doing the field work. Now instead you have somebody with a blog site. And perhaps I'll give you an example of one that's somebody I've been I've been sent this about 2 dozen times in the last week. On the coast of Mexico something washed up on the shore and this would have been less than a month ago and they don't know what it is. It has no fins, it has no tail, it's just got a mouthful of teeth. And everybody's going, oh, that's a, it's an aborted dolphin fetus. Oh, no, no, it's a baby sea monster. No, 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 it's this, it's that. It's an eel, specifically a moray eel. Um, the picture they're all looking at is only one of six or seven that are out there. And when you look at some of the other pictures, you can see the teeth. And the teeth are textbook moray eel and other people are going well these you know it's a blind sea monster no the eyes are glazed over because it's dead and you can't see it on the angle that everybody's reprinting on the internet basically it's a purple-headed moray eel that has washed ashore and it's misshapen because it's bloating it's been dead for a while it has internal decomposition going on 24 times I've gotten it. I just checked online. 24 people have sent this to me, and 24 people have been told, stop sending me pictures of dead moray eels in Mexico. And even if you can't recognize it as a moray eel, it was found less than 75 miles from where last summer there was a large number of moray eel attacks on swimmers. So it's in a moray eel area of Mexican water. It's got the teeth of a moray eel. It's got the shape of a moray eel, more or less, if you allow for bloating. Sounds to me like it's a moray eel, not a sea monster. I expect I'll have it two more times by morning. (laughs) Speaking of that example, the moray eel... uh... Is the the decomposition and uh, just the change that goes uh, 
along with uh, death that you mentioned. Um, Does that explain like that Montauk monster? You know, some people say it's 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 not uh, some kind of alien hybrid type species. It's a dead raccoon. It could be. It could. uh, I mean, I think a lot of the chupacabra sightings are actually starving feral dogs with mange, but. Again, you've got to look at each case on a case-by-case example. Um, there are definitely sea monster sightings that are decomp. Um, there is an effect called the pseudoplesiosaur effect. And what happens is a basking, who's a filter feeder, dies. And the mouth is just this massive gill structure because it's taking in water and filtering out the plankton and pushing the water away. The first thing that happens when a basking shark dies is these gills fall off because they're such soft tissue. When you lose the gills and mouth of a basking shark, what you're left with is a small head and a long neck. It looks like a plesiosaur. And these have been washing up for hundreds of years. And it's not going away uh, because they, they do. They look like dead plesiosaurs. They, the, the flippers don't fall off. So what you end up with is a small head, long neck, four flippers. It looks like a plesiosaur. But to paraphrase Sigmund Freud, sometimes a plesiosaur is a plesiosaur, and sometimes it's not. And Freud would not recognize that quote, I assure you. It, you know, Dave, another it, uh, uh, fact I. Uh, I learned from uh, sun, sand, and sea monsters is the the, the example of the, uh, this Caribbean scuttle kind of ah, like attack a, a, a thing with the. Uh, uh, pattern of vibrations of this uh, animal walking. Uh, yeah, that really put into perspective your attention to detail in, in understanding what people are reporting. Can, can, can you explain that story? I'm not sure I can, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. Um, Scuttle by itself is the Bahamian term, local term for an octopus. So a giant scuttlefish is a giant octopus. And the problem is how big a giant octopus is depends on what you ran into. But the one you're talking about is actually um, a very odd situation, um, which they all are. Otherwise, I wouldn't have bothered with the book because it would be boring. Um, 
there is a researcher named Wood who was part of the giant octopus revival in St. Augustine who was convinced that there should be giant octopuses or giant squids in the waters of the Atlantic and that they were probably going to be in the area of what's called the tongue of the ocean, which is a insanely deep section of ocean right off of the area that we're, that we're, we were expecting to see it. The problem was, according to Wood, there was no food source for that big of a critter until they started making deeper attempts. And that's where you see a, a gentleman by the name of Sean Ingham, who was um, a Bermudian fisherman who was starting to experiment with specialized traps that would go down 6,000 feet, 12,000 feet, just, and he was finding that there were in large shrimp and two different species of crabs down there that were big enough, but he was starting to have problems with something either snagging the cages, the, uh, basically a crab trap is a, like a lobster pot. You go in, you don't get out. But uh, it's a situation where he's, he loses a large cage, uh, pot, and he assumes it's just because it was so big, because it was, you know, 5,000 pounds of crab and the extra duty trap, and it broke the winch. But then he starts using smaller traps, and he's still coming up with damaged. And at that point, he's minding his own business, and suddenly something grabs one of the traps they're lifting up with the uh, winch. And they engage it at a higher torque, and it starts rolling again. And snaps the line, and he loses another trap. Now he's thinking, something's going on down there. The next time he tries to bring up a small trap, uh, I think three by three, tiny little thing, the winch is starting to strain, which is insane because it should not be able to struggle because if it's struggling, that means it's trying to lift 4,500 pounds. And that's far more weight than that little truck could hold. So he uses the chromoscope, which is a um, basically a death recorder. It, it goes down and does an echo back. Find something big, 50 feet high, sitting on the trap. Something big enough that it's the size of his boat. So suddenly, after... 20, 30 minutes, the, whatever this thing is, is tired of fighting with the winch, and it starts pulling it toward the deepest areas. Now, he's hanging on to the line, and he's feeling vibration of pattern. Uh, he, the pattern reminded him of something walking. So he's thinking, whatever this thing is, it's an octopus or a squid, it's actually grabbing hold of the bottom with legs and pulling itself forward as if it's walking on the bottom, dragging the trap with him, which is still attached to the boat, which is being dragged also. 
and it's only a 50-foot boat. This is not a situation you want to find yourself in. The, the rope finally goes slack, and they, they pull the trap up very quickly, obviously, and it, it has damage on one side, but apparently whatever it was, it lost interest at that point. He's convinced it was a giant octopus, considering he's seeing giant shrimp and big crabs down there, which is more than enough of a, um, a feeding supply for these critters. But he's thinking that one of these giant octopuses, which are not stupid animals, they can escape from most cages, has figured out that the trap is a nice, small, consolidated source of food. Why should he go out looking for crabs when he can just find one of these traps and have a lovely little feast without all the effort? So that's again another. It's it's it's, they're 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 clever. There was one that just escaped from a zoo, an aquarium in uh, New Zealand recently. Um, Somebody left the top of the tank loose. It got out. It went across the floor. It it lifted up a floor drain, and it it worked its way through sixty feet of pipe drain pipe out into the ocean to escape. Cool. Yeah, he's going to have stories for the grandkids. Okay, hey, but this, uh, this uh, is the same area where you start getting the stories of the Luska, which is the beast of the blue holes in the Bahamas. And depending on who you ask, that's either a half shark or a half octopus or a half eel, half octopus or a half dragon, half octopus. The key is it's always half octopus. So they're saying it's got tentacles and they are able to pull fish, fishing boats underwater. Now, I don't mind that as a folk tale, but these blue holes that they think have these critters in them uh, are notoriously powerful whirlpools. They're, they're so deep underwater that when the tide goes up and down, um, these blue holes actually develop whirlpools or gushers as they desperately try to equalize the water levels inside them and outside on the ocean. So if you're fishing in a little boat in a blue hole and the tide goes out, there's going to be a whirlpool. You're not getting out of it. They may find you when the tide reverses and the water comes pushing up, but, you know, I don't think you need a half an octopus to get yourself killed in a situation like that. Okay. Hey, uh, Dave, we're down to about four, three, four minutes. Uh, yeah, do, uh, uh, we still have uh, you know, a whole lot more to cover. And, you know, we're, you're, we're just going to have to have you come back. Uh, but do, do you want – uh, give the listeners like any websites, uh, you know, what your uh, tour schedule is through uh, uh, New England, uh, you know, book titles, anything like that. Sure, I can do that. Um, April 2nd, which is a Thursday night, I will be at the Haverhill Historical Society in Haverhill, Massachusetts. 
and I will be doing a presentation on Lovecraft in the Merrimack Valley, which is his visit to that area and how that appears in some of his stories. On April 4th, Saturday, I will be at the um, Parafest in Kittery, Maine, doing a presentation on sea monsters. That will be the official release of the sea of uh, sun, surf, and sea monsters. And uh, that's sponsored by the Essex County Ghost Hunters, who actually use it as a fundraiser for the restoration of a cemetery in Haverhill. So it's a kind of a cause near and dear to my heart as well. Um, Sunday, April 5th, I don't have the time in front of me. I will be at the International Cryptozoology Museum up in Portland, Maine, signing probably the Sea Monster book, if nothing else. And then Monday, April 6th, I return to Massachusetts to do Myth and Megalith, my little overview of some of the more famous sites in New England and a history of how we got to where we are with them. And that will be at the Methuen Public Library in Massachusetts. I will post these online probably on Facebook. Um, my website is my last name, Goudsward, G-O-U-D-S as in Sam, W-A-R-D dot com backslash Dave. Um, I'm hoping to get the calendar up there, but I'm notoriously bad at updating the website. Um, okay. I will be – you can find me. It's not hard to find me. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I may be on other places I've forgotten about. Um, I'm always available to answer questions or whatever needs to be done, So, such as if I need okay. to be tracked down to do another appearance. Okay. Uh, well, uh, we want to track you down for another one. This was terrific, and you know, uh, Tom Spitaleri uh, commented already, and Harold Lynn. So, uh, you, you already d- developed a bunch of fans. Hey, uh, Barbara, you want to wrap it up? Uh, th- thanks, Dave. Really appreciate it. And Barbara's going to step Not in fun. and say good night. That's assuming she. Yep, I'm here. I'm awake. Um, Thank you so much. This has been a really cool show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, You can find our our shows for next week on the website, barbaradelong.com, and from the website you can go to our uh, YouTube channel, and if you like what you hear, please be so kind as to subscribe. Thanks, everybody, for sharing your time with us. Have a great night and a great tomorrow. Bye-bye now.